Are we all turned on? Everything working? Amen. Well, it's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. This is the day that we normally think of our Lord triumphing over death and rising again from the grave. But what I want to do in this message is go back three or four days and lead up to that time of the resurrection. And then we'll get to the resurrection at the end. But I want us to read this morning from Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. One of the great prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is in Deuteronomy 18. And it says that one day God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. And they waited for years and years and years and no prophet like Moses ever appeared until the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the prophet like Moses. And he went way beyond Moses. Uh, we see many places in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus is referred to as a prophet. He per- referred to Himself as a prophet. He said no prophet can perish outside of Jerusalem. So He was a prophet. And not only was He a prophet, He was the prophet. He was the only one who ever perfectly represented God to man. He perfectly represented God's character and God's works and Word. He whom God has sent speaks the very words of God, for He gives not the Spirit by measure unto Him. And so He was the prophet. Everything He said and did perfectly reflected the message that God had to us about what God is. But not only that, He was a king, wasn't He? Many prophecies in the Old Testament talk about him being a king. These verses we Psalm 110. And God says, I have installed my king on my holy hill. And we have, uh, you know, um, who is he that was born king of the Jews? It just goes right through Scripture. Behold, your king comes to you, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. And then in the book of Acts, they're preaching this other king, Jesus. 
So he is a king. Not only is he a king, he is the king, isn't he? He is the king of kings and lord of lords. So you want to think about this? Was he a real prophet? Yeah, he was a prophet. He was the prophet. Was he a real king? Well, he's the only king. All these others are just little men that have no power whatsoever, but he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But as the song says, crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. And that's what we want to look at today. The Lord Jesus as priest. And this psalm that we have just read, which is a messianic psalm, and it's actually quoted more often than any other psalm in the New Testament, um, clearly sets forth the Lord Jesus as a priest. And not only a priest, but a priest forever. And a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, you may remember that this passage is quoted a lot in the book of Hebrews. And interestingly, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that specifically refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as a priest. Kind of amazing. But we do see priesthood referred to throughout the New Testament and in the Gospels even. Jesus says that He came to His life ransom for many. He's talking about His priestly work. He came to give life. A ransom for many. Paul says he loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's his priestly work. Uh, Peter uh, says that Christ also died for sins, once the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's his priestly work. So according to the Bible, the Lord Jesus was a priest. But before we go any further, we need to ask what is a priest? And before we read the Bible definition, I want to give you a typical dictionary definition. This is a, a quote. A priest is a religious leader authorized to perform the sacred rituals of a religion, especially as a mediatory angel or angel, agent between humans, and one or more deities. So he's a mediatory agent. He's a go-between between humans and one or more deities. They also have the authority or power to administer religious rites. In particular, rites of sacrifice to and propitiation of a deity or deities. And before we go any further, it might be time to talk about Propitiation. Uh, propitiation is to remove wrath by offering a gift or sacrifice to placate, pacify, or appease. So these, quote, priests offer sacrifices to appease angry gods. Okay, that's the secular. And these priests, so-called, appear all over the world in all kinds of religion, wearing the most ridiculous and grotesque and even evil 
outfits. It's pretty amazing. And they say all kinds of gibberish and shed buckets of blood, human and animal. In, and let, let me give you some quotes. In historical polytheism, that's where there's a lot of gods, a priest administers the sacrifice to a deity, often in a highly elaborate ritual. Priestesses in an sacred prostitution. You talk about a contradiction. But often, concerning human sacrifice, quote, Human sacrifice, the act of killing one or more is an offering to a deity as part of a ritual. I'm still quoting. For the reconsecration of the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan in, this is down there around Mexico City, I believe, 1487, the Aztecs reported that they killed 80,400 prisoners in four days. That's what they recorded. And some uh, question that. They say those figures are too high, that uh, it was only about 10,000 people in four days. Can you imagine how, what, what you're talking about? We can't imagine it. 2,500 people every day. I mean, they're... They're killing men, and some of you know the Aztecs did this. It's horrible. I can't talk about it. But thousands of people sacrificed for the sun god in four days. The same article says they normally only killed between 2,000 and 20,000 per year only. And we're talking about human sacrifice. That's between, on the low end, just five a day. You imagine seeing that in your society? Five a day. On the high end, 55 a day. And the same article says that human sacrifice was, quote, practiced on a far larger scale in ancient China. Far larger than that. According to Roman and Greek sources, the Phoenicians sacrificed infants to their gods in a single child cemetery. Archaeologists have uncovered there were deposits of infants. I never realized that. Human sacrifice was also practiced in Scandinavia, in Crete, and many other places, and people were killed in different ways depending on the God being placated. That's human sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. Time would fail me to talk about this, list the history of this in various cultures. A few years ago, I was in Lebanon, and the brother that was a missionary there took me to Heliopolis, the Roman city where the rich Romans Tired, and uh, there was what was called a high altar to Jupiter, which is the Roman version of Zeus, the Greek god. 
And this high altar is a high altar. I don't I don't know how many feet up it was. I was talking to Mona about it today, but I think it was I think it was about forty feet up there. There's a picture of me standing up there on the top, looked like a speck. And on that high altar, there's a there's a trench that runs out from the altar that's about like that, I suppose. Comes out maybe six inches wide. And it goes out straight and down the side of the building. And when it gets down below it, there's the trench continues in the pavement. And then it goes to your left if you're standing up here because all the good gods were over here. And the blood ran down that trough and down the side and down. Can you imagine how much blood you'd need to ever make it over there to those other buildings where those gods were? And this is the Romans. Now let's come up to the present. In 2014, in Indonesia alone, 800,000 animals were sacrificed in one Muslim festival. In Turkey, 2,500,000 sheep, cows, and goats per year. I mean, are we aware that this stuff is still going on? Pakistan, 10 million per year. Quote, countries such as Saudi Arabia transport nearly a million animals every year to Mina, which is a city near Mecca, for sacrifice. Now, a lot of these things that I just mentioned are sacrifices related to feast, but they're still religious in nature. And many other sacrifices are still going on in other religions around the world. Beloved, to sum it up, the overall impression that I have anyway of priest sacrifices as they appear in human history and the religion of the world is something grotesque when you think of a priest and a sacrifice. Why is that? Well, to answer, we go to the Bible definition of a priest. And that's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And we <clears throat> turn to that if you want. He says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obliged to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So Christ also did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest, but He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Just as He says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the, Mel to the order of Melchizedek. So a priest is someone taken from among men. He has to be a man. He's taken from among men and He's appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God to offer sacrifices to put away 
sin. In other words, the priest is a man that can enter into the presence of God and bring other men with him. That's the idea. Brings men near to God. Now, I think that explains why the priests and sacrifices in world religions are so grotesque and ugly. Because what you have is man trying himself to approach God and to atone for his sin in some way or another and to take care of the problem. And you end up with something very ugly when you do that. The, all these world religions and priests and all these religions and all that human sacrifice represents man's attempt. And that's the way it is when you attempt to take care of your sin yourself, approach God. This is the way it's something up. And it can go all the way to the maybe. Or someone out of the group. And the more you try to put away your own sin, the uglier it gets. Isn't that amazing? All of these things represent man's vain attempt to make himself right with God. And when you try to do that, you end up with some really ugly things. Where are you going to get a man who can approach God himself, much less help bring other men to God and make it possible? for them to draw near to God. <clears throat> so, uh, priests come into the picture when you have angry God and you've got sin done and you've got to try to figure out a way to take care of. And so you have um, ideas of sin and atonement and appeasing and so on. Some of you got Theologians know about uh, Charles Finney's idea of governmental, the governmental because governments don't have priests. You're not talking, we're talking about a sin against God, not a crime against the government. And priests don't enter into governments. And so you're ready. Dealing with something that's unique here, you see, it has to do with a sin against a God who's really there. So, it has to do with this word propitiation, appeasing wrath. And for that, I want us to go to Romans 3 21 to 26, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. And then we'll come back and try to tie all this together. <clears throat> Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, again, this word propitiation, verse 25. What does propitiate mean? Well, it means to remove wrath by the offering of a gift or sacrifice, to placate, pacify, or appease. There is a word expiate. That that has to do with a thing, sin. You expiate and atone for sin. But propitiate terminates on a person. It has to do with turning away the alienation of a person. Okay? So, uh, theologians uh, agree there's four parts of this. First of all, you have a person who is offended. And then you have... Um, um, well, let's, I guess first of all, you have an offense to be removed. Then you have the person who was offended. Put it like that. And then you have an offender who's guilty of the offense and you have a sacrifice or some other means of making atonement for the offense. So those four aspects. Let me just give you some examples of this. You don't necessarily need to turn to this. But with Jacob and Esau, this is in Genesis 32. Um, I can read part of it to you. Uh, Jacob's going back to meet Esau. He's afraid of him. And it says he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male... There's a lot of money involved there. And He delivered them into the hand of His servants, every drove by itself, and said to His servants, pass on before Me and put a space between droves. And he kept doing this, sending these groups. And um, they are supposed to say, these belong to your servant Jacob. <clears throat> it is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. And the way uh, Jacob sums it up, he says, you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said to himself, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. I don't know if I ever got any water up here. I may need some of that. Thank you, brother. If I talk too long, it goes out and I start start coughing. But think of this. He's sending on these droves of animals. And he says, maybe that will appease him. So what you have an, uh, an offense to be removed. You go back to Jacob and Esau. And you have an offended party. And you have someone that offended. And you have him trying to something to take care of the problem. 
So <clears throat> that's one example. Sometimes men will get some flowers for their wife to offend, to, to remove the offense of the offended party. And uh, that's an idea of appeasing. But the classic example that I think of, if I think of appease, appeasing an angry God, this idea of here's the, here's the God of the volcano who's angry for some silly reason or another, and you throw the young maiden into the volcano to appease the angry God and the volcano quiets down. That's the idea of appeasing. <clears throat> and if what I've read is accurate, you can literally say that tens of thousands, surely thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of human beings, young men and young women, especially and infants, have died in just that way. Some silly trying to appease. Thank you, brother. This will take care of me, I think. <clears throat> Literally, in human history, tens of thousands of, of, of young men and young women and babies have died trying to appease an angry God by human sacrifice. And that's the best answer the world has to offer. And other people looking at that have turned that on Christianity and they say, oh, you're saying God's like, you know, He's mad for some reason. He's mad and He demands a human sacrifice, Christ, on the cross. That's what you're telling me Christianity is. <clears throat> you know, and if he gets a human sacrifice, then he'll quiet down. Now, what's wrong with that? And what's right with it? Well, what's right with it is it is the death of Christ was propitiation. But there's a bunch that's different than that. And that's what I want us to look at here. <clears throat> First of all, What's different about the biblical propitiation? Well, there's three massive differences. First one is the nature of God's wrath. What is God's wrath? Well, God's wrath is not some selfish fit of anger or some little uh, you know, thing where He got offended about something, a, dis a loss of self-control, you know, a display of peevishness, you know, when He's pouting in some way or something. God's wrath is His holy determination to punish sin and to make every wrong absolutely right. And beloved, God's wrath, it's not some volcano God you know, that's mad. It, God's wrath is a holy thing. If He didn't have wrath against sin, He would not be a God worth worshiping. Mona and I were there in Auschwitz a few years ago where, where uh, hundreds of thousands of people were gassed and burned. Uh, there were 16,000 pounds of women's hair that was still there when they came. They were using it to make sacks out of. 
Now, what kind of God would you have if He looked at that kind of stuff going on in the world? And it's going on all the time. It's going on right this minute. If we knew how bad sin was, even in little places around here, we'd lose our minds. What kind of God could look at that and just shrug his shoulders, so to speak, and walk away from ho-hum? No, the Bible says he's angry. He has anger every day. His bow is bent every day. He hates unrighteousness. He demands that the scales of justice be satisfied. We can be, we can be confident in this, beloved. If God did not balance the scales of justice, the whole moral order of the universe would collapse. I was reading last night there uh, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy where uh, they find somebody that's been murdered out there in a field somewhere and they don't know who did it. You remember this? God says, uh, find out which city is the nearest. We don't know who did this. Blood has been shed in the land. Find out which city is the nearest. You get the elders from that city and come out and kill a heifer. Why, why? And he says, you know, it'll be forgiven. You won't, the land won't be polluted. What, what is that? God's saying, <clears throat> That thing here, there's been a murder that's taken place in our midst, and and justice has never been satisfied for it. Nothing has been balanced. Nothing is. No death has taken place to balance it out. And God demands that that thing be made right in some way. And it's a picture of what has to happen ultimately either through the death of Christ or men being put in hell. God is determined <clears throat> that every wrong be made right and that the, the scales of justice be perfectly balanced in the end. And so, when we think of propitiation, think of this. The nature of God's wrath, it's a holy hatred of sin and a determination. The Bible says the law works wrath. And so the fact is, if you've got sin, and we've got lots of it, it's got to be paid for. It has to be. It's going to be. There's no way that it won't be. So first of all, the nature of God's wrath. Secondly, the nature of the sacrifice. Why is the death of Christ propitiatory? Why did it turn away the wrath of God? Well, not because God is some kind of bloodthirsty monster that wants a human sacrifice. He abominates that kind of thing. That's not why the death of, of Christ put away sin. Why was the death of Christ propitiatory? Well, because the Lord... Jesus didn't just die. He died for sins. He died for our sins. Our sins were laid upon Him. And you have this word impute. And you know Paul there, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, <clears throat> this runaway slave. <clears throat> and he says, if he owes you anything, impute that to me. Charge that to my account. Now that's the same word the Bible uses to talk about our sins being imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So here's this slave comes back to his his master Philemon, and Paul says, if he owes you anything, put that on my account, impute that to me. Now this is the thing to get. It's not just pretending. He's saying, I'll take that as my debt. And when that is moved over to Paul, if he imputes that to him, he puts that on his account, it is no longer on Onesimus' account. It's on Paul's account. And now it really is his debt, even though it wasn't before. It is now his debt. It's been imputed to him. And he pays it. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus. Our sins were placed upon Him. That's why the Bible says He bore our sins in His own body on the cross. Bearing sin, the idea is it got put over on Him and He actually paid for it. So when God justifies, He's not pretending anything. He looks at your book and He says, look, you owed a tremendous debt but that's been placed over on somebody else's account and they have paid for it for you in full. Beloved, you may have some awful things in your sinful past, but I want to tell you this, they're not floating around in the air. Every, the worst thing you can remember that you've ever done, it's not floating around in the air. It's not that God said, you know, don't don't worry about it. That sin has come down and it has come down on the Lord Jesus Christ and He actually paid for it. The suffering to pay for that, it's been done. And the judge, when he looks at that, he makes a statement about what is actually true. He says, your debt's been paid. You're justified. He makes a declaration about what's actually true. You know, the great problem in justification is how can, a, how can God be just and justify the ungodly? It says in Proverbs 17.15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to God. And you've heard this illustration, you know, uh, you you find you come in, you find your family murdered, and you catch the guy that did it, and he comes before the judge eventually. And the judge says, Yes, you've done this horrible crime, but I'm a very loving judge, you know, you can go. Well, that's unjust. It's wrong. It's evil. It's an abomination to God, and yet God justifies the ungodly. It says that in Romans 4. How can that be? Well, our sins were imputed to Christ, charged to His account, and His death was a satisfaction of justice. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. And that's what happened in the death of Christ. It was not a human sacrifice, you see, at all in that sense. It was a satisfaction of justice. But thirdly, what are the differences? The nature of the wrath, it's a holy thing. The nature of the sacrifice, it's a satisfaction of justice. What's the third difference? The one who provides the sacrifice. Who provides the sacrifice? This is so different than any heathen idea of appeasement. You know, man comes up here and provides a sacrifice. 
But the biblical teaching of propitiation is that God Himself loves the objects of His wrath so much that He provides a way for the wrath to be removed. Now how can this be? Our ideas of love and wrath are carnal things. You know, they're selfish things. But when you talk about the love and wrath of God, you're talking about wrath that's a holy wrath. And God so loved the objects of His holy wrath that He made a way for that to be taken care of so that we could come into His presence. The Bible says that, doesn't it? God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He provides the means of propitiation for the wrath to be removed. There's no idea of an angry God and a loving Christ and He's trying to come in and turn away the angry God. Uh, so John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided that Lamb. Romans 5.8 and 9, God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than Now, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. See the love and the wrath right there together. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us so much that He sent His Son to turn away His own wrath. And even in these verses in Romans 3, it says God set forth Christ to be a propitiation. He displayed Him, verse 25, as a propitiation. So, um, even in the Old Testament sacrifices, this was true. They didn't just gather around and say, well, I think maybe a goat might be a good thing to offer. No, God told them let me read it to you. Leviticus 17.11 The life is of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Even Abraham with Isaac, he said God will provide for Himself the Lamb. So, away with all these unworthy ideas of propitiation. But let's look back at uh, this passage in Romans 3 briefly, and then we'll try to sum these things up. Romans 3, 24-26. Let's, let's just work through it backwards. He says in verse 26, For the demonstration I say of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus died so that God could be just at the same time that He justifies us. Now this passage, you know, a lot of people they read through this, it's just a bunch of mush. It's so many words. But look at this. God gave this sacrifice so that He might be just at the same time that He justifies us. Alright? And then it says, for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time. 
that he might be just. So God was demonstrating his righteousness in passing over these sins. Look at it in verse um, uh, 25. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed. What's he saying? Well, all through the Old Testament, all they offered was these bulls and goats. And a bull or goat can't pay your sins. So all along down through there, the real payment for sin never had happened. God was passing over sin and He was rolling this thing forward year after year. But when God justified Abraham, it looked like He wasn't just. You couldn't say, well, Abraham got justified because that bull died. That's not enough. And all the way through the sacrificial system and the law and all that, God's passing over sin, passing over, passing over, even though they were in a sense, you know, forgiven enough that He could stay there. But the real thing hadn't happened. And when Jesus appeared on the scene, John the Baptist said, who actually does it, He takes away the sin of the world. So look at this. It says, God, verse 25, God displayed Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. So he, God's wanting to demonstrate to the whole world, I really am righteous and I really am going to have a, a payment in full for sin. A goat can't do it. A bull can't do it. Nothing can do it except the Lord Jesus Christ could do it. And so it says in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly. You ever thought about this? The Lord Jesus didn't die in a closet somewhere. He was displayed publicly. He's out there on the cross, lifted up, and God is He's causing the sky to grow dark for three hours and the earth to shake and everything else. He's saying, look, look, look at this. Something is happening here beyond just a man dying. He's displaying Him publicly to show, to demonstrate, to draw our attention to that something cosmic was happening here. He says, I'm demonstrating my righteousness. I passed over all those sins without an adequate sacrifice. Now, there is an adequate sacrifice. This is actually being paid for. As a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. So He turns away God's wrath from us. And then backing up a little bit more, verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We've been justified as a gift. It's free to us, but it's expensive to God. It's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And how does it all happen? Well, it comes through receiving righteousness from God as a gift by faith in Christ. So, Think back of where we started with all this. The whole idea of a priest and a sacrifice. 
And you think of all those so-called heathen priests and the hundreds of thousands of human sacrifices and the millions of animals still dying in our day. All of those priests and all of those altars down through history, and this is a shocking thing, not one of them was an actual priest. And not one of the sacrifices was an actual payment for anything. And that's something, all those buckets of blood, gallons, none of it. Ne there has, listen to this, there's never been one true priest but the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like there's only one king, there's never been one priest but the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's never been one sacrifice but the sacrifice of Christ. And I wish that we could somehow get out of our mind when we think of a priest. I wish we could get out of our minds, you know, the, the padre and all of that. And every kind of, I mean, really, even the term priest, I can't get it out of my mind. It's, it's something kind of... But we're talking about, beloved, we're talking about a champion who arose from among men, who has no sin of his own, who brings a sacrifice of infinite worth. He gathers up men. The prophet comes down from God and says, this is what God's saying. The priest is down here among men gathering up humanity and taking them into God's presence. And there's only been one who's ever done that or ever could do that. And there's only been one sacrifice that ever could take away sin. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite? No. That can't atone for sin. You might feel terrible about your sin. That doesn't do one thing to pay for it. How much are you going to cry to pay for your, to pay for one sin? It won't pay for it. But there is one sacrifice that actually paid for it. And isn't this amazing? This is the gospel. God says, just trust, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. How is it in the Old Testament they put their hands on the head of the goat? They said, put both hands on there and confess all your sins in regard to all your iniquities. He goes all, 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 all. Because for the Christian, there is no condemnation. Every single sin laid on the head of the one Lamb who sacrificed Himself. He gave Himself. And think of this. I was... I did a series one time on the miracles of Christ. And he as a man, he did those miracles not as the second person of the Trinity, he did those as a man. A man attested to you by God through signs and wonders and miracles which God did through him. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power and he went about doing good. This a man as a man. And you think of what the greatest miracle of Christ, you know, maybe the resurrection. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. But I don't think that was the greatest miracle. I think the greatest miracle was that as a man, I think he's the high priest, every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. 
as a man, he through the power of the eternal spirit offers himself without blemish to God. That's, I think, the greatest miracle that ever was. He wasn't burnt up and annihilated because he came out on the other side. And that's the resurrection. That's what we're talking about today. He came out on the other side of it. He offered the only sacrifice that has ever been offered. And he is the only priest who ever was. If we could wipe out from history all these other so-called priests and all that other blood that was shed, even then, if you go to the Old Testament, God, what He's saying something to us there. Even though they didn't actually pay for sin, He's saying something. He's saying there's got to be a death and He's saying there's a lamb coming. But there was buckets of blood in the Old Testament. All those sacrifices. We heard the other day if they were carrying the ark, they'd walk six paces and offer all these sacrifices. What must that have been? We just read right over it. Paul Washer said one time down in Peru, there was a bunch of men gathered up there in the jungle and they slaughtered some goats to feed all these men. And just those few goats, there was blood everywhere. There was pools of blood all over everywhere. Think what it was like when they offered thousands of animals in the Old Testament. What's God saying to us? He's saying this thing is ugly beyond imagination. All of that stuff, all of human history and all of the Old Testament, what Christ suffered on the cross, we can't imagine. I mean, that blood is just, it's a, faint shadow of what the reality was. And he was upheld by the Spirit and his perfect trust in God to offer that sacrifice. It was a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice because it actually satisfied justice and righteousness. It, pro it was provided by God Himself and the wrath it removed was not a peevish anger, but a holy hatred of sin and a holy determination to make every wrong right. Beloved, isn't that a, quite a thought? Isn't it, isn't it a, in the world in which we live right now, isn't it quite a thought that every wrong, that scales of justice are like this right now. Every one of them, right down to the, to the idle words every one of them is going to be perfectly balanced out and we're going to be able to look out and say everything is right. Everything's been made right. God's going to do that. And He'll either do it through, through putting men in hell forever or through the blood of Jesus being applied to their lives. Well, what's it mean for my daily life? It means that I can get up in the morning and I know my sins are gone forever. They've been, they've been paid for. And I have a whole new standing with God. There was a brother a few weeks ago, he was talking out of uh, Matthew 9, the passage of the paralytic. My son, you know, take courage, your sins are forgiven. And you always think of that in the present tense, you know, God, 
the Lord Jesus forgave him right there. Take courage, your sins are forgiven. That's as true of you this morning if you're a child of God as if it had just happened. Take courage, your sins are forgiven. They're gone. They're paid for. And it means that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace. Many verses in Hebrews about this. We've been uh, cleansed by not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. Peter says, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. And it means because we have a real priest, it means that we're constantly upheld now because He ever lives, He's resurrected. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He upholds us. You know, that high priest is carrying the names on his shoulders. He's burying us continually. All that's teaching us about what Jesus has done and is doing as our priest. He's bearing our names on his shoulders. He's bearing our names on his heart continually. And our, the judgment, the, the Urim and the Thummim, which had to do with guidance, He's bearing that on his heart continually. He'll show us what we need to do. He's saying, my sheep hear my voice and and I know them and they follow me. I'm going to show you which way to go. He's bearing that on his heart continually. As our ever-living high priest. Well, um, I almost wish we had a different word than the word priest. Uh, because we've got so many wrong ideas of what a priest is. But I wish we could just lay hold of this, that we're talking about one one who was mighty to save in our midst, who had no sin of his own, who was able to offer a sacrifice of infinite worth and actually pay for our sins and bring us to God. And that's why we have a resurrection morning, because we have a priest like that who ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen.